turn to chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. We're going to read a few verses, starting with verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any man should testify of man for he knew what was in man. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come humbly before the throne at this time, Lord, just to beg that you would be with us as we study your word, Lord. Lord, we ask that the speaker would decrease and that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would increase, Lord, that you would become large before our mind's eye, Lord, that you'd be the single object of our affection and our attention today, Lord, that we would be focused on you, Lord, that we would be here and present and that you would be in our midst, Lord. We just ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and amen. So we've been studying the book of John, and as I've mentioned at the beginning of every sermon, the book of John is about belief. The book of John is written so that we would believe. John 3.16 says we must believe so that we do not perish, so that we have eternal, everlasting life. The book of John is designed so that we would know Christ as he knows us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is referring to Christ, the eternal logos, the principle of reason that is the animating force of all things. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He comes into existence, or into, let's say, the material plane. He is born, he's incarnated. As a man, he's in the world, but the world doesn't understand him. And so John writes all these things so that we can understand, so that we can believe. You get the prologue in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Then you get the record of John the Baptist who baptized all of those who were coming, seeking repentance, seeking the kingdom of God. Then Christ comes to John the Baptist and he says, behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. We sang about the Lamb of God today. What is the Lamb of God? The sacrifice which taketh away the sin of the world. Then Jesus starts calling his disciples. He takes those disciples with his mother to the wedding at Cana. He turns water into wine. That's the first public miracle of his public ministry. He turns water into wine. He commands these people to bring him firkins or jugs, pots, vessels of water filled to the brim, turns them into water. I mean, turns them into wine. And that's the first miracle. Very public miracle, but nobody knows that he did it except for the people who obeyed him. Then, him and his disciples, they go to Jerusalem for the Passover. Again, over the course of his ministry, there are four Passovers. This is the first of the four. Three of them are written about explicitly in the book of John. At this Passover, what does he do? We're talking about Jerusalem. Millions of people, like a million people, are coming to Jerusalem at this time of year for the Passover. It is packed. It is the ancient world, packed with people. 
He goes into the temple, which is not, it's not, Jerusalem today is a you know, multicultural city, right? There's a Jewish side, there's a Muslim side, there's a bunch of Christians. It wasn't like that back then. Jerusalem was a Jewish city. It would have been filled to the brim of Jews and Gentile converts to Judaism that go to the temple, and the outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, is filled with a market. People selling animals, animals for sacrifice. He drives them all out. He builds, he creates a whip, a scourge, and he beats these people who are selling animals and sacrifices and changing currency out of the temple. Okay, it's a, it is miraculous. Okay, imagine, this is a pretty good sized church service this morning. I'm, I'm blessed to see it. Okay, imagine it's the biggest church service of the year. Okay. It's packed to the brim in here, standing room only. There's people out in the outer corridor, and someone's out there selling goodness, like, who, I don't even know, you know, God forbid, right? God forbid that ever happens. But someone's out there selling something, and a man comes in here who none of us know and beats them until they leave. And then, and we do nothing about it. By the way, there's a hundred Roman guards, right, right outside the temple. Right? This is occupied Jerusalem. Rome is, their job is to basically stop rebellions and riots from happening. This dude drives everybody out of the outer courtyard, and the Roman police don't get involved. He doesn't get arrested. The Jews come to him and say, what are you doing? Show us a sign. By what authority do you do these things? And he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up again in three days. So he's, they say, show us a sign. And instead, he gives them a prophecy, not of the collapse of the temple, though the temple will eventually be torn down, but of his death and resurrection. Now we get to the text that we've read. (laughs) When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. So what are the miracles? Well, driving the people out of the, te- the, the money changers in the, in the, in the market out of the temple, that's kind of a miracle. I mean, one guy doing that by himself without getting arrested, without getting, I mean, flogged there on the spot. I mean, it's surprising that he was not crucified there on the spot, if not for the fact that he is divine. Okay. By the way, if this didn't happen, right, wouldn't there be like writings Right around the time that John was writing this, that are like, yeah, this dude, John, just fabricated this whole story because, like, I was alive 15 years ago at the temple, and that definitely didn't happen, right? Everybody's like, uh, in the world, <laughs> there's this incredible interview uh, that I was, this, <laughs> so Joe Rogan is interviewing this guy, and the guy's like, Jesus is the most important part of my life. This just happened a few months ago. And Joe Rogan's like, how do you know he was even real? How do you know he was even real? There's more written documentation of this one man than there is of the Caesar who was in charge of Rome at the time, right? There's more written document. There is like 10 or 100 times as much written documentation of Jesus Christ as there was of Socrates. Like way more. It's not even close. So, I mean, when you're out in the world and you get these kinds of responses to the existence, like the historical existence of Christ, I mean, write them off as having no knowledge whatsoever. And the fact is they do know. Again, Romans 1, the creature knows the creator but suppresses the truth in unrighteousness to justify his sin. 
So he's in Jerusalem, and what miracles did he perform? He drove them out, but there are miracles that are not written in this book that he's performing at Jerusalem. And people believe. There are people in Jerusalem, again, a million people in Jerusalem. He's walking around the city of Jerusalem during the Passover, and he's performing miracles, and many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But, and this should terrify all of us, Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Jesus does not commit himself. What does that mean to commit himself? Another translation says he did not entrust himself. The word for commit is the same in the Greek is the same word as believe. So they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. He doesn't buy their faith. There's something about their belief, right? That does not work for Jesus. He does not believe in their belief. And this should be pretty terrifying because how many of us in our minds say, I believe? How many of us see the signs and wonders and say, I believe? How many of us see the church working over two millennia to purify this fallen world, to redeem this fallen world in the name of Christ, the body of Christ working to make something good out of what man has corrupted for 2,000 years, overwhelming evidence, pillars of fire saving the Jews from their slavery in Egypt, and they don't believe? They might say they believe, but here there's a kind of belief that Christ says, well, I don't believe in you. And he needed not that any man should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So this is an incredibly rich section of scripture. The more I study John, the more I'm convinced It might literally be the greatest thing ever written. Like the gospel of John might actually be the single greatest piece of writing ever produced by human, not even the mind of man. It's inspired by God. This is formed in the mind of God for our benefit. What's happening in this section of scripture is it's a transition, right? We're going from these miracles that are taking place in Cana and taking place in Jerusalem, and we're about to learn about Nicodemus, and we're going to learn about the way people are saved by the moving of the Spirit. Okay, so, so these three verses, again, if you didn't know this already, the chapter delineations are not in the original text, right? When, when John is writing this, he's writing it in Greek, and... There's no chapter three. There's no chapter two. There's no verse numbers. He's just writing a story. And so when you read this, what you realize is these are transitional phrases between the miracles in Jerusalem and the conversation with Nicodemus, because it's teeing up a conversation with a Pharisee about the nature of belief. And John, in like a work of literary genius, manages to fit an incredible amount of theological detail into these transitional statements. Because we know these mirrors, they drive out all the people of the temple. The Jews come and demand a sign. He says, you will have no sign. You have a prophecy that I will give you that came true, by the way. And then just sliding it in at the end of the chapter with three verses here. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and his feast day, many believed in his name, but when, when, he, when they saw the miracles which he did, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them. So they believe when they see the miracles. If you turn, turn to chapter 4, 
Jesus goes back to Cana, where he performed the miracle with the water and the wine. And one goes to him and says, you know, would you heal my son? He's at the point of death. And Christ says to him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. And Jesus says unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the son is healed at that moment. And so what's being illustrated here is that the nature of belief, he's saying, you only believe if you see me do it. But you don't need to see me do it. I am in complete control. I'm sovereign over every inch of creation. Every molecule in existence directly responds to my spoken word. I am the God of all creation. I am the eternal logos. And I don't, your faith is weak, man. You don't need to see me do this. But go your way. The sun liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. As, and he goes down, and he finds that the son had been healed at that moment. All about belief. The whole book of John, is the gospel of John, is all about belief. Why? Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me, not because you saw the miracles, but because you ate of the loaves. You seek me not because... Not because you understand me, not because you believe in me, the eternal God, but because you want the signs, you want the benefits, you want the earthly pleasures, the food, the water. Your, your fathers ate manna from heaven, but they're dead. But now my father gives to you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and gives life unto the world. The whole book, the Gospel of John, is about belief. He needed not that any should testify of man. Okay. So, first of all, we see the people believing because they saw the signs and miracles. We see that Christ doesn't buy their faith. He doesn't believe in their belief. Because he knows all men. And he doesn't need that anyone should tell him about man. He doesn't need a psychology professor. He doesn't need an anthropologist. He doesn't need someone in a lab coat. He just knows. He knows all men. He knows everything about all men. He knew what was in man. Look around you. Look at the people around you. Every Wednesday, we come to Bible study here, and I see Brother Don and Sister Rosalie. Without fail, they are always there, smiling, sincere, just compelled by the Spirit to be an image of love in my life. It's a wonderful, one of my favorite parts of the week. I see them here every Sunday, too. Twice a week, I see y'all, and it's one of the great blessings of my weeks. And yet, it's a sliver of their lives. The smallest, slenderest thread of their life is known to me. Luke, I see more than that. Probably three or four times a week, I see Luke. Amen, but I barely know you, bro. I barely know. Really, really. I, I mean, what I know about Luke is a, a small fraction of what he knows about himself, right? But then look at yourself. Look into your own heart. How well do you know yourself? 
None of us remember the first year we were alive, two years we were alive. Do we know our own motivations? Do we know what drives us, what wakes us up in the morning? Do we remember our dreams? God knows everything about you. Every inch, every moment, every thought, every prayer, every dream, every hidden sin, every mistake, every distraction. God knows all of that. God knows all of that when he was driving the men out of the temple. When he's cleansing his father's house, he knew every secret thing you've hidden from the world. Every secret thing you've hidden from yourself. When he's being beaten and scourged and betrayed and spat upon and a crown of thorns put on his head, he's being mocked. He's being slandered. He knew about you. All of you, every single one, every little detail. He knew it about you, and he took it to the cross. I'm just blown away by the Gospel of John. I really am. Like, the more I read it, same chapter over and over, new things come out every time. Just the incredible blessing that you have right here to be able to read this book. I'm not exaggerating when I say it literally might be the greatest thing ever written. I mean, if it's not the greatest thing ever written, it's in competition with other things that are sitting here in my hands right now. Right? It's incredible. It's a masterpiece of literature. It's a masterpiece of storytelling. It's a masterpiece of truth-telling. If you ever find yourself confused, if you ever find yourself bewildered, this is the way to straighten yourself out. Mm-hmm. Having this at your fingertips right this moment, this is like having the world's greatest chef living in your house and offering you a meal three times a day, and you're going to say, no thanks, I have to watch Netflix this evening. No, 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 no. I'm sorry, guys. I've got to doom scroll on Instagram this morning. I can't feast at the buffet of the living God. I can't consume the eternal word, the bread of life. I'm talking to myself here. I'm really talking to myself here. Every moment not here is a moment wasted, right? I mean, you pray. It's funny. I was praying, praying for this service. And you just realize all the things you do in life, all of it is of secondary importance to getting on your knees and praying. If you did nothing but pray every single day until you starved to death, you would have lived a better life than most men. Because you chose to follow God, to seek first the kingdom of heaven, to look at this word. And here, this is tough scripture. I mean, this, is, this might not sound encouraging because I'm saying, hey. There's a kind of belief where you think you believe, but you don't really. And God, and God doesn't believe in you. And by the way, he knows every single square inch of you and there's no hiding from him. That might sound a little discouraging until you realize that if you are the one that's saved, if you are the one that's truly believed, if that belief does work in your heart to make something out of you, to sanctify yourself, to purify yourself, it's not you doing it. It's the word. It's the grace of God working on you to make something out of you. If that's you, 
He's doing that in spite of you. Everything that he knows about you, he took to the cross. He carried it in the cross, in the beating of the nine tails on his back. Most of us haven't had a real injury. He suffered for It's just an, I mean, his whole life he knew it, right? This man lives in eternity, okay? He's living in eternity. There's no escape. Like, he knows the suffering that he was going to go through before it happened, after it happened. It's a con, it's an eternal sacrifice. This is an inconceivable cosmic kind of human sacrifice, divine human sacrifice, sacrificing God for divine justice, in spite of ourselves. You know, they believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. He had no faith in their faith. Jesus regarded all belief in him as superficial, which does not have as its most essential element the consciousness of the need for forgiveness. If I, if I just said, we're looking at this book, I'm saying we don't read it enough, Right? There's really two reactions to that. You're right. You're right, Brother Daniel. I don't read it enough. God forgive. Have mercy on me, a sinner, O Lord. The other reaction is, I'm doing my best. Are you in the first camp? Do you know that you're depraved? Do you know that you're not doing it the best that you can under your own power? Or are you in the second camp, justifying yourself? Before God, saying, no, 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 no. I'm doing the best that I can. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name because they saw the miracles. They saw the signs. But Jesus didn't commit himself unto them because he knew all men. He needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He is omniscient. He knows all of it. There is nothing hidden from him, nothing that you can tuck away. The man trying to hide from God is digging his own grave. You ever, when you were a kid, I know every man in here did this, you went in your backyard and tried to dig a hole to the other side of the world, yeah? Every, every man in here certainly did that, right? I don't know about the girls, but definitely the boys all did that, right? You, you make your mom like sweat bullets and have heartburn because you're tearing up your yard because you're going to get to the bottom and and you never think that if you got deep enough you wouldn't be able to climb out like that's man trying to hide from God just in the mud digging himself deeper and deeper and the only way he's getting out is if God lowers a vessel to pull you out let's pray dear heavenly father Lord, we're just so grateful for this time that we've had together, Lord, to study your word, Lord. We're so grateful that you know us, Lord, that we are exposed to you, Lord. We're grateful that you are good, Lord, to forgive. Father, there's so much to be thankful for in this word. God, we ask that these precepts, these things that we've learned today would dwell richly within us, Lord, that they would work within us, Lord, that they would sanctify us, that they would cleanse us from sin, that they would cleanse our hearts, Lord. We beg for clean hearts, Lord, that we would see ourselves the way that you see us, Lord, as your sons and daughters, because of the sacrifice of your only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Father, we just ask for all this, and we pray for the rest of the service, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
appreciate what Brother Danny's brought forth. I'm going to make a couple of comments about uh, what he said out of John. It was really good, and John does uh, point us toward encouraging our belief in Christ. And we oftentimes are like the father with the sick son that says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. But how is it that we even believe? How do we believe? In Hebrews chapter 8, uh, we're taught, and uh, which is better, to know something or to believe something? Uh, I think the two work together, and I think this enables us to, to believe. In Hebrews chapter 8, it says, uh, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not according to the, the covenant I made with their fathers when I brought them out of the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. He says, and the Lord is, is saying, this is something I'm going to do. Not what you're going to do, but what I'm going to do. He says, for I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. He said, I will. When the Lord says, I will do something, it's not debatable. It's not that he might or it might or might not work out. He says, this is what I'm going to do. He says, I will write my laws in their mind and I will write them in their hearts. And he goes on to say, and I will be to them a God, not I hope to be, or I'd like to be, or I might be. He says, I will be to them a God. And he says, and they shall be to me a people. That's just pretty confident that it's going to happen. That's the group that Brother Danny was talking about that do believe. The belief is not what causes you to get eternal life. The belief is because you are a child of God and that God has already visited you first and quickened you with his spirit and made you alive. And the belief bears witness with what you've got on the inside. Your belief doesn't cause you to get it, but it shows that you have it. And here's what he says right here. And I love this. These work together with what Brother Danny was bringing forth with us. And he says... And they shall not teach every man his neighbor. Now, if there was anybody that could teach somebody to believe, it'd be Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ saw some of them, and he says just plainly to them, you believe not because you're not of my sheep. So there's some that will never believe. No matter how many examples you have, no matter how many proof texts you have, there's some that will not believe. But those that do believe are the ones that Christ has visited first and done a work of grace in their heart, and that enables them to believe. But sometimes our belief is strong, and sometimes our belief is weak. Sometimes we believe like the father that his son would be delivered, and sometimes we're like the dad that says, Lord, I believe, but would you help my unbelief? There's some unbelief that kicks in occasionally with us, and we're probably going to have that as long as we live here in this life. But those promises and those examples that John was teaching that Brother Danny brought forth is to encourage us in our belief, is to strengthen us in our belief. Now look at what he says. And I like that this is all of God. He says, I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And then he says, and I think this is, this was perplexing to me. I grew up, I've got many friends in denominations that the whole purpose is to teach somebody to believe. Is to teach them to get eternal life. Is to cause them to accept Jesus Christ. 
But here it's kind of like doing it backwards because look what he says right here. He says, and they shall not. My pastor used to say to me, and he's dead and gone with the Lord right now. He says, it just simply means if you've been doing it, you ought not to do it anymore. He says, and they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. Now that's strange. You would think I had an aunt that she felt like that it was her responsibility to help populate heaven. And everybody that she came in contact with, she shared Christ because she felt like that that was going to help populate heaven. She didn't realize that God had already done that work before she got there. And long after she's been gone, she lived to be 96 years old and, and Lord's still doing that work. And he's 100% effective in what he does. But look what he says. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, what? Know the Lord? That's not our responsibility. It's the Lord's responsibility. But when he teaches us to know the Lord and puts it in our heart, then we can believe these principles and truths that John brings forth. What a great encouragement to strengthen the belief that God has given us. Brother Danny, I think that you said when you were going through the book of Romans, this is the greatest book that there is. And now he's in John saying the same thing. And I think that whatever book he's in, it's the greatest book at that time. And that's sort of the way it is when we are reading God's word. In fact, I think you said Romans chapter 10 or chapter 12 was the greatest chapter in the whole Bible. And so what a great way to see it. But here he comes on down and he says, for you shall not teach every man to know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. How are they going to know him? He tells us right here, for I'll be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no more. How do we know him? We know him because of what he did in writing his laws in our mind and in our heart. And as a result, we know him. And that comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. Brother Danny referenced the Holy Spirit. That comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works in us. And when it does, it's immediate. And when it does, it's effective. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you hath he quickened. That simply means that he takes something that's completely dead and he makes it alive. And once you've been completely dead, made alive, then you believe. Belief is the blessing that you have. It's the evidence that you have that you're a child of the king. And God, through those writings in John, will strengthen your belief. As Brother Danny said, it's going to strengthen your belief in the Lord. The miracles that he performed. We talked about miracles a couple of weeks ago. And the, one of the benefits, there are about four specific benefits of miracles. And one of the benefits of miracles, of Christ performing miracles, is that you would believe. When you've had a miracle in your life and you can look back upon it. I mean, we referenced even Jared and Grace. That strengthened your belief. When you saw that God worked a miracle, it strengthened your belief. So John is great. It is an outstanding book. And I'm so thankful that Brother Danny brings those promises to light that are in the book of John. It's so good. And when he gets over in John chapter 6, that's just 
that's just one of my favorite books in the whole Bible, the chapters. You're going to like it a lot. So thank you, Brother Danny. I want to just talk briefly about Psalm 103. This is a great psalm. It's, uh, it's 22 verses. Won't get to all 22, but I encourage you to go home and read this. It's a really good, a really good uh, book here. Psalm 103. David is writing this song, psalm, and he's, he just steps back and he just praises God. And he says that he wants to praise God with every fiber of being that he has. With all that's within him, he wants to praise God. And then he tells us some of the reasons that he praises God. He comes down and he specifically tells us some of the areas that he highlights that we praise God. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. He says, with my soul, I have a desire to praise God. And he says, I want to praise him with every uh, fiber in my being. I want to praise God and I want to bless God. God has done so much for me in my life. God is doing so much for me, and God will do so much for me when he takes me on home to glory that I want to praise him. Now, I think it's good that you praise God with your soul, which he talks about right here. But it's also good when you, as we're taught in Hebrews, that we present our bodies a living sacrifice. We can praise him with our body and that you're doing it today by being in the house of God. When you come to the house of God, there's at least a thousand other things that you could be doing today. But and, and, and oftentimes Satan will tell you and he really begins to tell you about eight thirty, nine o'clock on Sunday morning of all the things that you could be doing before coming to the house of God. But you're praising him with your being by being here. The psalmist says, I want to bless God. And I want to bless him with all that's within me, with every fiber that I have in me. I want to bless his name. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. I, I love the song that we sing, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will, it will surprise you what the Lord has done. If anybody here ever deals with despair, discouragement, depression, anything like that, one of the ways to come out of it really, really quick is to take a piece of paper and start writing down all the blessings that you have of God, how that God has blessed you. And did you know that in the course of that exercise, as you're writing down all of these blessings, all of a sudden it'll pull you out of a season of despair and despondency and discouragement because you'll begin to realize that there's a lot of he says right here, forget not all of his benefits. One way to not forget his benefits is to write them down. I mean, really, just write them down and look over them. Uh, the older you get, the more you'll realize the benefit and blessing and importance of writing things down. Heard one preacher say, he said, I don't, I don't, I don't try to remember anything that I can write down. Well, there's some things that, that uh, we need to remember, but it helps if we, can, if we can write it down. And he says, forget not all of his benefits. Well, you can look at the benefits that you've experienced in your family, with your children, with your parents, even your own self, and it'll begin to pull you out of a season of despair. Forget not all of his benefits. He says, for... And Brother Danny alluded to this. This is so good. So good. This is in line with, with John. He says, Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy 
diseases, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Do you know what? He forgives all the iniquities that you know about. And he even forgives the ones you don't even know about. You may say something the wrong way. It may be perceived the wrong way. You may not have even meant to do it. It had ill intentions. But we're not perfect. And God forgives those things as well. He forgives all the iniquities you know about. He forgives the iniquities you don't know about. He says he forgives all of our iniquities. And he healeth all thine diseases. Now, we... Um, interesting that it says this. Because you may be thinking, well, I know of some diseases that are among us right here that have not yet been healed. And we've prayed to God and we've asked God to heal them. We know of some folks that are struggling with cancer. We know of some folks that are struggling with the effects of strokes and, 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 and mental issues and things like that. And God hasn't yet delivered from that. He says right here that heals all the diseases. He doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to heal, I believe, all the diseases here in this life. There may be diseases that we carry with us to the grave. But the good news is, ultimately, we're going to be healed from all diseases. There's not a single disease that you're going to take with you to heaven. You're going to be delivered from it. You may be delivered from it here in this life. But you may be delivered from it here in this life, or you may be delivered from it by this life. When you've passed from this life, those diseases are going to go to the grave, and you're not going to pick them up and take them with you on home to glory. So he delivereth us from all our diseases. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. He says, who satisfieth thy mouth with good things so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. I, I think of uh, I think of Elder Compton when I when we read this verse right here. So that thy youth is renewed like eagles. Elder Compton lived to be one hundred and two years old. And even after a hundred years of age, he had such strength and zeal and stamina to serve the Lord. Luke remembers him well. Luke used to help take care of him. He had such a, an unusual amount of strength. His vision, his outlook, his mindset was still strong in the Lord. I think of Sister Perry, who was 104 and still with such zeal desired, desired to serve the Lord. That's what he's talking about right here. He says, Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. It's, it's almost like you're renewed in your youth, even in old age. Now you can find some young folks that act like old people, but it's pretty good when you find some older folks that their strength is renewed like eagles. And they can continue on even into old age. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. I think that's interesting. There may be those that are oppressed. They be, there may be those that are mistreated. There may be those that are neglected. There, there may be folks that fall into that category. But the Lord knows them. 
And the Lord is the one that can encourage them. And the Lord, it says, executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. You may at some point suffer for righteousness sake. There are people in other countries that stand fast for the very principles that Brother Danny brought forth earlier that are being oppressed because of their belief. But that's not the end of the story. Because it says right here, the Lord is the one that executeth righteousness and judgment. The Lord knows those that are oppressed. And the Lord can overrule and execute righteousness and judgment for those that are oppressed. It continues on down. It gets really good there in, in the latter part of this chapter. It's real good. He hath made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, and he's slow to anger, and he's plenteous in mercy, and he will not always chide, will, neither will he keep his anger. Verse 10 says, He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Those three, four verses right there all are sort of sandwiched together. Verse 10, he hath not dealt with us after our sins. What does that mean? It means that to the degree of our sin, we've not received the same degree of punishment. That if we got what we deserved, it'd be far worse than what we get. And it's because, and he tells us in verse 8, that the reason that the Lord does not deal with us to the same degree of our sin is simply because it says the Lord is merciful and the Lord is gracious and the Lord is slow to anger. So for each one of us, we haven't received the punishment that we deserved for our sin. When I grew up, it was back in the old fashioned days, uh, Punishment was allowed at school even. They had a paddle that the principal had at school, the teacher had. And, and, and at that time, way back in the 60s and 70s, those methods were very effective. Uh, maybe they've lost some of the effectiveness since that time, but they were very effective. I had a great respect for the, the principal and a great respect for the teacher. And I remember seeing those paddles hanging on the wall. They were very, very effective. <laughs> and a few times I was... Sent to the principal's office. I'm not going to tell you why. I can't even remember. I don't want to remember. But I remember I was sent. But I can remember that you'd get a certain number of licks depending on what you did. And honestly, you could hear those licks throughout the little, little bitty school. You could hear it throughout the school. And everybody was wondering who it is that's getting the licks. But I always felt like that I was getting more punishment than what I deserved. But the Lord does it just the opposite way. Lord doesn't punish us to the degree that we deserve. That's what he's talking about right here. And he hasn't dealt with us according to our iniquities because of his mercy, because of his grace, because he is slow to anger and because he is plenteous in mercy. And then he says something that's really good right here. And this is for all of us. For as the heaven is high above the earth, 
so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. That same group that Brother Danny's talking about. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. And then this is interesting right here. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from him. I think that's really good the way he described that right there. He said that as far as the heaven is high above the earth, I, I don't know how high that is. I don't understand the gulf between the earth and heaven, but I know it's a great distance. And he says that as far as the heaven is, is high above the earth, he said, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. If you fear the Lord, then you can claim his mercy and you can claim that his mercy is great for you. And his mercy is compared to the gulf between heaven and earth. But then he says something that's really good right here. This is so good. As far as the east is from the west, so Far hath he removed our transgressions from him. I think it's interesting the way he described this here. He didn't say as far as the north is from the south. If you start heading north, you're eventually going to get to the North Pole or you go south. But if you go east or you go west, you're not going to find the East Pole or the West Pole. That's how far... He's put your transgressions from him. He's basically just saying, I put them away. And I don't remember them. And I don't dwell on them. And they've been paid for. And you've been delivered from them. And he says, your iniquities are as far as the east is. They're removed as far as the east is from the west. And then he comes on down and he says, like as a father pitieth his children... The Lord pitieth them that fear him, for he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. He knows we're frail individuals. We can't even stand on our own. It's only by his mercy, his grace, his strength that we can even stand. That we're frail in and of ourselves. He knows how frail we are, and he's merciful to us in the midst of our frailty. He remembereth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. And then he compares us to this. As for a man, his days are as grass. It's grown up one day. It's gone the next. As for his, his days are as grass. And then he compares it to even something more tender than the grass. He said, and as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. But he says, the wind passes over it, and it's gone. And the place thereof is no more known, shall be no more known. Continues on down, talking about the mercy and the blessings of God and how his mercies are from everlasting to everlasting. He talks about our frailty. And David just says, I remember, I see that I'm a frail man. And I believe that God's had a lot of mercy upon me. He's blessed me with a lot of benefits. He's delivered me from my sin, and I, with whatever fiber I have, whatever time I have left, I just simply want to take what I have and praise and bless his holy name. You're doing that when you come together to the house of the Lord to praise his name. God bless you. Psalm 103, encourage you to read all of 103. It's a really good, really good chapter.